Welcome to Just Think, the podcast. The podcast where we don't want to tell you what to think. We just want to encourage you to do it. We are three friends that came from across the political spectrum who were tired of partisan politics and were alarmed at what we saw happening in our country, including the growing political divide. But we found as we challenged ourselves to recognize our own biases, to put them aside, we were absolutely united in our pursuit for the truth. And that's why we started this podcast to share the conversations we were having around that pursuit and to invite you into our conversation. To encourage you to feel free to ask questions. Search for the answers yourself to say what you think. That's right, because as we like to say, diversity of thought, ideas, and beliefs are welcome here. Asshats are not. (laughs) (laughs) All are welcome as long as you just think. Welcome to Just Think, the podcast. This is Holly. And Amy. And Kristen. And we are so excited to have a guest that we've been wanting to interview for quite some time. Our schedules have finally collided. Dr. Robert Malone. So many of you who are listening, you know who Dr. Malone is. I think he's best known as the inventor of the mRNA technology. I think back in 1989, I think it was Dr. Malone when you had nine patents out of this research um, and this innovation that you were helping to really create. And I think that if anyone were to go to these sources that have been manipulated and controlled, they've now tried to rewrite who you are. But what I love is that that's impossible to do because the truth is on your side and you have written your book with the whole story, Lies My Government Told Me. And I'm going to... Re- we're going to put the link to our book in our resources in our Substack, but I just want you guys to know this book is filled, and I mean filled. If I I could sit here, I told Dr. Malone before we started, we could talk for days and days about just little things that are dropped into this book. But what I love is that Dr. Malone, as Bobby Kennedy said about you, I really loved the way he spoke about you. He said you're perhaps the most important figure in actually being uh, one of the whistleblowers on what has really transpired over the last two years because of your experience and not just innovation and clinical research, but you've been on the government side, the agency side too. And we're gonna let you share with our listeners here just a second, kind of your quick background story. But I just want everybody to know that like us, We never thought we would be having this conversation in 2023, two and a half years ago. Kristen, Amy, and I were just three moms, business owners, friends that came from across the political spectrum and found that as we searched for the truth, we were united in the pursuit of that. Well, Dr. Malone thought he was going to be on a farm in Virginia with his wife, with horses, and pursuing the next chapter of his life. He did not think he was going to be put back into the public eye or in the public eye and relied upon so heavily as we all are diving for the truth. And what we love and what I know Dr. Malone is going to get to share with us today is all four of us are united in the pursuit of that truth, but also in the pursuit of healing and unity in this country. So Dr. Malone, thank you. Will you just tell people real quickly who may not know and have been under a rock, how did you (laughs) back into this conversation. <laughs> so briefly, um, I was originally a farmhand and a carpenter. Um, wow. uh, this is my sixth, my, my wife and I, our sixth small farm. Um, 
uh, we're high school sweethearts, uh, 15 and 16, um, and have been together ever since. Uh, we've been married 40, almost 44 years now. Um, uh, and it's, you know, a marriage is something you have to work at. It doesn't just happen. Um, not to say it's a chore. Uh, it's a, it's a joy, but it's a journey together with another soul. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, that's, that's apparently not for everybody, but it's been the path that we've chosen. Uh, um, when I was young, uh, I was IQ tested and my mother, uh, and I was kind of pretty off the scale. And my mother thought that I basically, she laid it down that I had an obligation to humanity, um, as a consequence. And she kind of set an expectation that I should get the Nobel prize, which is don't do that to your children. <laughs> if you have gifted and talented children, don't lay oh. that stuff on them. Um, don't worry. We're good. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so, um, I rebelled against that and, uh, became a rock climber. And like I said, a farmer, etc. And then at one point, uh, New Year's Eve, 1980, I decided that I just didn't want to live that life anymore. And I wanted to get educated. And so I enrolled in community college in Santa Barbara on, on, uh, January of 19, uh, yeah, 1980. Um, and uh, just as often happens with children that aren't straight arrows, that have had a little time away from high school and and had the, you know, the the stuffing knocked out of them a little bit in the in the school of hard knocks. Um, I came back with a vengeance, and uh, really really worked my can off uh, in exceeded my own expectations and um, went burned through community college with straight A's and then went to UC Davis, uh, got involved in a laboratory focused on breast cancer research in part because my wife, my mother, I pardon, forgive that Freudian. Uh, my mother was so, uh, um, that's a little twisted. My mother was so focused on breast cancer and her risk of breast cancer, which by the way, is not what she died of. Um, she died of a heart valve problem, but uh, she was she was obsessed with it, and and so I worked in a breast cancer research lab, focused on retroviruses, uh, which cause breast cancer in mice, but not in humans, or so it seems. And while I was there, the lab got involved in the very first discovery of a retrovirus involved in immunodeficiency syndromes in monkeys. This is at UC Davis Primate Center. Uh, from which was launched a big program focused on vaccine development. So that's kind of how I cut my teeth and was introduced to molecular virology, molecular biology. I graduated with a bachelor's in biochemistry um, in a really pretty hard-ass program. Uh, not as hard as chemical engineering, but just a notch down. And uh, um, and I, at the time in this uh, in this time frame of uh, the early 80s, it was wicked hard to get into medical school and to imagine that I was going to manage to do that with my bent arrow background was a stretch. But uh, I had been working for a couple of uh, pretty high-end uh, pathologist researchers that were well-known MD-PhD types. And they just wrote me a stunning letter. And suddenly I found myself with an MD-PhD scholarship 
and uh, at Northwestern. Uh, and that was uh, a bad mistake. I should have held out or gone to USC or something. Uh, um, and my wife will never forgive me. And I'm never again allowed to make decisions about relocation. Um, <laughs> uh, Chicago is definitely cold. It's not um, California. That's uh, for sure. It is, it is no. not Santa Barbara. No. Uh, so, uh, um, and so she was really unhappy. We had a newborn um, and not much else except for a parrot. And uh, I applied for uh, graduate school instead of at Northwestern at other places. So I'd have to give up my scholarship. And I really wanted to be a gene therapy researcher. And so I uh, managed to get in because my, at this point, my graduate exams were kind of off the charts. I had two years of medical school plus four years of hard ass science. Um, and uh, so I got into um, University of California, San Diego, who had two of the top gene therapy researchers at the world in the world at the time. One of them was on the main campus, Ted Friedman, who'd come up with the idea. And the other one was at the Salk Institute in Verma, who had been trained by, he basically was the guy in David Baltimore's lab that did the work that David got the Nobel Prize for. And David had been trained at the Salk Institute. So it's all one little do loop there with the Salk. There's a lot of a Nobel laureates uh, at the time at the Salk and it produced a lot of future Nobel laureates. So it's a real high powered place. On the cliffs in La Jolla, um, Jonas Salk was still alive at the time. And uh, so long story short, uh, Inder took me into his postdoctoral lab. So I was the only graduate student in an insanely competitive. Uh -oh. I think he froze. Okay. Uh, uh, molecular virology uh, in molecular biology laboratory, which is where I learned the nuts and bolts of virology, working with viruses, um, doing plaque assays, purifying. Yes, viruses do exist. Sorry about that. Um, so that knocks <laughs> out 10% of your audience right there. They're going to turn it off. Um, <laughs> Hopefully uh, not. Hopefully not. <laughs> And, and I wanted to ask, so when you're in the environment like that, as just a little graduate student surrounded by um, cutthroat postdocs that are all competing with each other, you have to find some little niche, uh, otherwise you're just going to get eaten alive. Right. And so the niche I chose was trying to figure out how retroviruses assemble mm. and how they package their RNA. And without getting into the details of the science, in order to do the studies that I wanted to do in a rigorous way, I needed to find a way to make large quantities of synthetic RNA based on a DNA template and put them into cells so I could ask questions about how they interacted with the viral machinery to cause assembly of a retrovirus. And I think anyone who just heard you say that, most of our <laughs> listeners are like, this dude is so beyond my intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I, I, I object to that. It's it's it, you're in the moment. I mean, like it's so a lot of this stuff is like cooking. It okay. really is. There we um, go. Now you're speaking my language. Now you're speaking our language. Yeah. Like and and um, the the nuance, a good a good cook yeah. approaches her kitchen, not with a book, right. um, but with with an intuitive understanding of of things. And it becomes more like art. Yes. Mm -hmm. And okay. and this kind of research out on the edge is kind of like that, where yeah. it's uh, it's what can you imagine and then how can you make it happen? So don't yeah. don't ever put yourself down, please. Well, um, 
but so so yeah i was at the front edge of that stuff and uh i had a series of discoveries because i was just there in the moment and a key one was that this whole idea of gene therapy just wasn't going to work gene you therapy thought that, that you thought that even when you were creating this mrna technology you thought yeah. well let, let me get the story out of my mouth yeah. so um so the big problem it turned out, and remember, I, I was passionately wanting to be a pediatrician gene therapist and be able to cure children born with genetic disease. That was that was what I was there for. I, you know, changed schools, gone to San Diego, relocated, um, all that grief, student housing, everything in order to do this thing that I was passionate about. And uh, the one of the postdocs that was mentoring me did a study with mice in which he put foreign genes into the mice and the mice basically stopped producing the protein. And it was my brainstorm that, you know, in, in everybody was going down these different rabbit holes of how come. And I said, oh, probably the immune system is rejecting the foreign gene, the mouse's immune system. And then once you realize that, then you're like, uh-oh, this whole house of cards of gene therapy for genetic diseases falls apart because you're your child, if you have a child with muscular dystrophy or cystic fibrosis or whatever, their immune system doesn't know that that gene is the bad gene. They okay. know it's their gene. Right. And if you put in the different gene um, that is the good gene, their immune system will say, oh, this is different and it will reject it. Bingo. Okay, now you right. got it. See, you okay. can understand this stuff. Okay, yeah, um, I got you. <laughs> and so um, then along comes these findings with getting RNA into cells involving positively charged fats. And that's kind of a being there at the right time, at the right moment, asking the right questions and having uh, really connected people point me in certain directions. That's how that happens. Um, but uh, having made those discoveries and then seeing that it would work in cells and it would work in frog embryos, and it would work in chick embryos, then it's like, okay, this is a whole different thing. This is not viral gene therapy. This is non-viral gene therapy. And it's a whole different idea because mRNA, in natural mRNA doesn't stick around very long. It lasts a short period of time. So then the initial invention disclosure was RNA as a drug. Mm. Okay. You could use RNA as a drug, which was totally radical at the time. Nobody ever imagined that. They didn't think you could even make it. So mm. I was so far out on the edge that when I would talk about what I'd done, people were like, oh, you're, you're from outer space. Um, there's no <laughs> way this is ever going to happen. Um, and so, uh, but the problem is that the thing doesn't work very good. And this is part, of, this is a key message for everybody. Okay. When you hear Yuval Harari at the World Economic Forum talking about how we're going to engineer humans and all this kind of talk, okay, he he doesn't understand what he's saying because this tech is not that good. It mm. can't go and correct all the cells in your body. It's really inefficient. However, this was the brainstorm. And I knew back then that it was not very efficient. And so the question was, what can you use it for? Well, you can use it to generate an immune response as if your body is infected by a virus, but without the virus. 
So now I've walked you through, now your audience totally gets where this came from Yes. Okay, yeah. and how it happened yes. is it's those two things of discovering that you can make, purify, um, formulate our synthetic RNA and put it into cells and tissues and get a little tiny bit of protein made. But that little tiny bit of protein is enough to trigger your immune response as if you were infected by a virus without having the virus. Okay, that's it. Now, fast forward to the present, and a lot of things have happened between then and now. And pseudouridine, which makes the RNA synthetic, and it doesn't behave normally, and it, and it sticks around um, for a long time in your body, which is not what natural RNA does. So the whole idea here um, of a transient short-term a molecule that gets degraded really quickly. And if somebody has a toxic effect, you just don't redose it um, mm. was the original concept, making it more like a drug. That all got perverted when they added the pseudouridine, which absolutely makes for higher levels. Well, actually the data are a little, I, I got to back off on that. There's a company funded by, by Tesla, by Elon Musk in Europe, called CureVac that doesn't use the pseudouridine. And uh, they got caught in a kind of a trap. They, they, did, they did things right in a kind of a gradual way as opposed to this rush that, that mm -hmm. uh, BioNTech and Moderna did. Yeah. And uh, they um, did a more gradual uh, dose escalation. And when the data came out at their lower dose, which was much less toxic than what we're seeing now with these other two, um, it, the immune response wasn't as high in terms of the antibody response. Mm. And this is another key thing for everybody to understand. The government and the, the pharma are all trying to teach you that antibodies equal protection. Okay, that's false. That has not been demonstrated. Okay, that may be true. It may not be true based on the data I've seen come out. I got to say, I think they've got it wrong, mm -hmm. but we had all of this marketing and PR and everything else and, and the propaganda pushing the idea that the antibody response correlates with protection that has never been demonstrated. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's in, in, in pharma land, in the world that I used to live in, um, you have to go through the rigorous test to prove a, here's the phrase, a correlate of protection. Right. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And that has not been proven in the case no. of the antibodies. No. And in mm -hmm. fact, the whole idea behind this of using a gene therapy method to elicit a vaccine response mm. was based on the idea that if in a, using a gene therapy method, you'll get both a cellular and an antibody response. And that's a much more complete immune response. Whereas with purified proteins and adjuvants, you often get almost exclusively an antibody response. And so the, this was the core idea behind this. And then it's like they just have forgotten history um, yeah. in the presence. In that's the present. Right. So so I hope that's without burning too much of our airtime. Oh, I hope you know that captured it. You just explained that so well. Yeah, that like I'm like, Okay. That's important too, yeah. because when we say this isn't a vaccine, it's not a traditional vaccine, you just explained why. You explained the whole it's idea. absolutely a gene therapy. And I'll give you a little wrinkle on the story. 
Okay. And then we can move on. Yeah. So I'm in this insanely competitive laboratory and uh, full of insanely competitive people. Otherwise it wouldn't be there. And I was one of them. You know, I was a young buck thinking that I was uh, going to change the world. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and the top dog in the laboratory was this guy named Dinko Valerio, um, who's Dutch. And uh, he was working on the new gene therapy technology, the new cool kid stuff, um, which was the use of a cold virus called an adenovirus. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was working on the use of adenoviral vectors right at the very forefront for the purpose of gene therapy. And uh, he came to me, he, when he left the laboratory, he took the technology and the patents that he generated and he created a new company called Crucell back in the Netherlands. And uh, Crucell perked along on venture capital money and nothing really happened. And he came to me a couple of years later after we had both left the lab and I was at a gene therapy conference and he said, he took me aside and he said, Robert, you're right. Um, we should focus on vaccines, not gene therapy. And so he transformed his company into a vaccine company based on adenovirus vectors. Wow. Okay. Now wait for it. So these, these two technologies both originate in the same laboratory at the same time. And Dinko comes to me and says, I'm going to change my company. I'm going to refocus it on vaccines. It then gets sold to Johnson & Johnson. That technology becomes the Janssen uh, vaccine that we're familiar with. It's one of the three that are licensed um, from the gene therapy tech. So the point is to underscore, um, just plus there's this fun little twist in history, but that uh, these are absolutely gene therapy technologies applied to the indication of vaccines. Got it. Got hey, it. Before we move on, Holly, I'm sorry, just, just to continue one more subject on the tech part, the lipid nanoparticles, that, right. uh, that, that also contributes to making this so different too, right? Because that is what actually gets it into. Uh, Absolutely. And, so and that's, that's, that's so that's got a, that's got an interesting backstory too. Um, uh, that's hardly ever told because the person that um, wants to take credit for all this uh, never talks about the early events. Um, so what really happened was that a company called Syntex, mm -hmm. um, there was a laboratory that was doing research into how to change the charge on the surface of cell membranes, which are generally negative. And so they were doing this research that has to do with neurology and, and you know, fundamentals of, of nerve cell conduction and things. They were doing this research and they'd come up with a tech of taking fats that would insert themselves into the membrane of cells and making those fats positively charged, which normally they tend to be negative or neutral, like cholesterol is neutral. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so they engineered these fats that were positively charged that would fuse with cells and change their cell membranes. And a young woman who had trained in uh, a cutting edge laboratory environment at UC Davis, because Syntex was in the Bay Area, um, did a uh, research rotation at Syntex. 
And she had come from this laboratory that was at the front edge of building recombinant DNA, uh, the laboratory of Bolivar and Rodriguez. Um, for any of the wonks in the, in the audience, uh, they created PBR322, one of the core original gene therapy, I'm sorry, uh, recombinant DNA vectors. Um, they also were seminal in some of the early um, sequencing technology. So this young woman who had been in this cutting edge lab at UC Davis, um, quietly doing uh, work on recombinant DNA, went to Syntex for a rotation for her, you know, as, as part of her training, exposure to industry. And uh, she said, as she encountered the laboratory, that she said, these lipids are positive and DNA is negative. What happens if we mix them? Can we get the DNA into the cells? And that turned out to work like gangbusters. Um, she never gets credit. I don't even know her name. I wish I did. Um, mm -hmm. But that's that's how that happened. And that's often how science happens is someone that, that thinks that they're not important mm -hmm. um, will come up with an idea Mm -hmm. And then um, all the important people all want to grab onto it if it works and, and their, their name gets lost in history. But that's, that's how this happens. So this tech of positively charged fats that self-assemble around a negatively charged polynucleotide, which is like a string of pearls that's all negative, okay? And they form an aggregate. These aren't liposomes. They spontaneously assemble in little particles. Um. Syntex could not get the RNA to work. And they had DNA working and they'd already published a couple of papers, but they couldn't get the RNA to work because they hadn't done all the work that I'd done on RNA to figure out how to make it and, and detect it and purify it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so they sent me their positively charged fat preparation. I had already been trying to get the RNA into cells with other tech. But as soon as I put those two things together, it just worked like gangbusters. Wow. And that's, that's what led to the present. But these self-assembling particles um, provoke a really strong, acute immune response. Um, mm -hmm. You know, swelling, redness, pus, those kinds of things. And uh, not discussed ever in the press. They didn't even discuss the patent, nine original patents. I spent about a decade working with Jill, uh, running a laboratory with uh, chemists, et cetera, um, trying to develop new positively charged fats that would be more effective in animals, uh, like in lung or in muscle or in liver, in getting either RNA or DNA in. And we eventually abandoned the technology because it was too toxic. Mm -hmm. And we That's pivoted, we pivoted mm -hmm. to other methods um, for getting polynucleotides in, like using pulsed electrical fields. That yeah. gave rise to the company called Inovio in San Diego. And hmm. Kristen, you mentioned something too when you asked this question. So that difference that Dr. Malone just explained, you guys are saying that allows for it to go into the body far differently than any other vaccines have, right? Crossing the blood-brain barrier, is that what you said, Kristen? So does, there right? is, you know, article, it crosses the yeah, barrier, and yeah, that's how they, it's getting the different organs, right? With the biodistribution. So, um, the backstory to that part, um, and remember, I've been in the liposome lipid delivery world pretty much my entire professional life, and so I have various contacts. And early on in this, uh, when it became clear that the mRNA tech was going to be, um, 
uh, let's say, gifted and fast-tracked. Um, I called up the lead researcher that had done really the most important recent work to make this all possible, who is at the University of British Columbia. Um, and I had known in the past, and I called him up and asked him about the various components, like why is the cholesterol there? Why is the polyethylene glycol there, et cetera? What's going on here? Um, the belief has developed that subtle changes in the structure of the positively charged fat and the mixture, the formulation, will cause these particles to go to different organs. I think that was more fantasy and an artifact of small sample numbers and, and people that were overly optimistic about their data. But that was the belief system at the time, like they also believed that these particles would only go to the draining lymph nodes. Clearly that was false. And um, I don't know how they convinced themselves of that. It must have been a small number of mice, but even the original Pfizer data package clearly shows that it goes all over the body. And paradoxically, it has a much greater, these particles have a much greater affinity for ovaries than they do for testes. Mm. And that probably has to do with some of the proteins and molecules on testicular tissues, some of the membranes that are charged there that excludes them. But the ovarian tissues in ovaries are highly, um, highly vascularized. So good blood supply to the ovaries yeah. for obvious reasons. Yeah, that um, makes it all that the spike, the most toxic part of the virus that the vaccine or whatever we, it's not that, but whatever we want to call this is being, it's being distributed to a very important organ. <laughs> so, so um, there's two angles to that. There's the spike that's produced because with gene therapy tech, your cells become the manufacturing facility. Okay, mm -hmm. instead of a big stainless steel tank somewhere, um, or a fermentation bag, it's your body that is manufacturing the, the vaccine is the truth, okay? The RNA is just a, a, a message, right? Messenger mRNA. The mess, it's just a message to instruct your cells to make those proteins. Mm -hmm. So there's, when you talk about spike, you have to talk about the spike that's being made in a very small subset of your cells, and then there's also the free spike that gets released from those cells, often cleaved, mm. um, that circulates. And there's a key paper from Stanford of February from last year that's focused on immune imprinting, which turns out to be a hot, hot topic right now. Yes, I wanted you to talk about that. Uh, so uh, back in February, a really high-powered team at Stanford did the studies that should have been done early on with uh, Pfizer and Moderna, and the FDA just failed to make them do what they should have done, which was that they administered the vaccine to the deltoid, as you know, the muscle there. And then they did biopsies of lymph nodes from draining lymph nodes over time, up to 60 days. And they also drew bloods and they, they, built a very sensitive assay for spike protein so they could detect small amounts of it. And they showed that the, and, and also assays for the mRNA or whatever this molecule is, because it's not really mRNA. Um, and they showed that this molecule persists in your lymph nodes in humans, not mice or monkeys, uh, for at least 60 days. 
and that the levels of spike protein produced in your body after you take the product um, from all the cells all over your body, because it goes all over, not just to the lymph nodes, the levels of spike protein produced are higher than they are when you get the natural infection. Furthermore, they come on really hard and fast. Okay, so you make this protein as a surge of protein in your body or your child's body, as opposed to if you get the natural infection, typically in your nose or your oropharynx, um, you get a gradual buildup of that protein and then your immune system is kicking in and it's gradually pushing it down. Very, very different. So when people say, well, how come, you know, why, how come people are getting these toxic effects from spike? Aren't they also getting them from the virus? In many cases, yeah, they get it, but to a much lesser extent because the dose is lower. That's and it. the kinetics of how it comes into your body is different. Does that make sense? Yes. And, and that goes to show too, Dr. Malone, because you write about this in your book, you know, the, the numbers started to skew more heavily towards the vaccinated having a harder time with COVID than the unvaccinated. And personally, I know we all could probably share stories right now of the number of people we know who are highly vaccinated who continue to get COVID. Meanwhile, those of us who were not got it like once. I guess you can get it twice. You can get it multiple times, but we sort of got through it and, and moved on. And yeah, so you're exactly right. And the data now, so when I wrote the book, Jill and I wrote the book, um, those data were not as clear as they are now. I could see the trends were there, but now the data is coming hard and fast. And there's a Cleveland Clinic study, for instance, and there's studies now from all over the world that the majority of people that are being hospitalized and dying are the heavily vaccinated. There was an article um, just out, one in Epoch Times and another in American Frontier that talk about this. We now have a pandemic, if you want to call it a pandemic, of the vaccinated, not of yes. the unvaccinated. That's right. But, but not according to Fauci. I mean, and this right. is the problem, just to like maybe even segue into our lovely media propaganda and our public health officials. But, you know, we, you... Uh, Dr. McCullough, Dr. You know Thorpe, Dr. Cole, you know all of these physicians, vaccinologists, immunologists, Gear Vandenbosch, like they're all coming out. They have we have receipts, okay? There's studies, but some person like Fauci gets on the news and says the evidence is overwhelming, you know, or our lovely president gets on and says you will not get sick. You you know this is going to be the winter of death for the unvaccinated, but yes. they don't have anything to back it up. But this is what everybody hears that's not really thinking or that doesn't know where to look or they're just listening to their doctors who only listen to the CDC. So this is where, you know, we know what you're saying is true. We know we've seen the evidence. We see that the hospitals have more vaccinated people than unvaccinated, but that's not what the hospitals are saying. And that's not what the news is saying. That's not what mainstream is, you know, media is saying. I mean, it's just, so, just you just want to shake people. Say it. And they just continue to say it. And they pull Fauci out of retirement to manage the propaganda. <laughs> well, and, and it is me, a little frustrating, isn't it? Oh. <laughs> just a little bit. Well, and I mean, no one's frustrating for us. We can't imagine for you. <laughs> I was going to say, nobody knows because more than you what that's like, Dr. Malone, because obviously we've watched you kind of come out of your own retirement. Well, actually, in 2020, you assembled a team of, of people really around, I think, the globe to to treat COVID. So you went 
where everybody else's, I think, common sense went, which was, well, sure, if you get a vaccine to, to help with this, great, but we need to treat now. We have right. people sick now. And you were a part early on in 2020 of creating that team to address the current sick people and help them get well, which we saw, you know, and this is for the second time, just so you know, that was suppressed. Nobody wanted to talk about how to treat. They only wanted to focus on this vaccine. And so my question to you is, uh, Dr. Malone, you you knew about this technology. You even took the vaccine. In fact, I heard you tell the story that when you got it, you said to the nurse giving it to you, yeah, and, and you're not one to toot your own horn, but you're like, I, I, I like kind of helped create this technology. <laughs> you did what you thought, you know, you thought, well, let's let's give this a try. You immediately had hypertension or pretty soon after. No, it was dose number two. Dose number two? Okay. Do dose number two, which dose is important. Two. Dose number one, I didn't have the adverse events. Okay. Dose number two, I did. And uh, Jill went online and found the How Bad Is My Batch? You can Google it too, yep. or uh -huh. DuckDuckGo it or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, personally, I use Brave, but uh, um, uh, and, and search out How Bad Is My Batch in the website. And they give you that little receipt about what your lot number is. And you can type that in. And it turns out the lot that I got number two um, with my second shot was one that was associated with a very high rate of both death and adverse events. Gosh. And uh, you'll, you'll appreciate the, that I developed hypertension with a systolic of 230 um, and uh, restless leg syndrome, narcolepsy, tinnitus, a lot of the symptoms that now are considered classic, mm -hmm. uh, but at the time had not been reported on. And just to frame it up a little bit more, Prior to that decision, I had a set because I do have a certain amount of pull, or I used to, with the government and officials and credibility in this area. So I had arranged for a teleconference with uh, Peter Marks of the FDA, who's in mm -hmm. charge of all this. By the way, he's a cardiologist. He's not a vaccinologist. He's not an right. immunologist. Um, he's not a molecular biologist. Uh, that's what he is. Uh, but I, I set a conference with him because I wanted to, I was assuming that Pfizer had kind of pulled the wool over the eyes of, of the FDA. I was still assuming that the FDA and the CDC and the NIH, well, less the NIH. I've, I've always known about Tony Fauci, but I was assuming they were acting in good faith. And so I set up a telecon with him and it was attended by a, um, uh, a public, um, uh, representative from FDA, somebody in um, public messaging. Um, and uh, and I raised my concerns about the data package that Pfizer had uh, submitted. Um, I only had a co the copy that was sent to the Japanese government, but the data tables were in English. And so I, I had analyzed those, so had Byron Bridle. And it was clear to me that things weren't right, what was being done. They didn't actually test the drug. They tested a, uh, a test molecule called luciferase, and it has nothing to do with the devil. It's the protein that makes the firefly <laughs> tail glow, um, which uh, allows easy detection because you can pick up photons. You have sensitive technology for counting photons or light particles. So that's why luciferase is used. And um, so I set up this uh, Zoom call 
with Peter Marks and I said, Hey, I could help you. Um, it appears that you haven't really understood what pharma has done here. Um, and these are technologies that I helped create. I was the guy that pioneered the use of luciferase in animals. Um, so I, I knew all of this tech really well. And he told me two things in this conversation. Number one, he said, I've received additional data from Pfizer um, and I've reviewed that and I have absolutely no concerns. Mm. Okay. Wow. And, and he also, and that those would be the data that they tried to hide for 70 years. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, so that was a lie. Uh, and he also asked me specifically to not make a big issue about this, to allow him as professional courtesy, the time to address these questions, which of course he never did. Hmm. Um, this is akin to the phone call that I had with Nancy Pelosi's office early on, in which I advocated that we get the data about both the vaccine um, risks in an age stratified way, and also get the data on the virus risks in an age stratified way, which the CDC was refusing to do and continues really to refuse to do. Okay, so I tried back then, I was intervening, trying to intervene with the government, assuming good faith, mm -hmm. assuming that they didn't have a corrupt relationship with Pfizer and Moderna. Mm -hmm. um, and on the basis of what Peter said, I went ahead and took the jab because I felt reassured that there were additional data that I hadn't seen that mm. made it clear that this was not going to be a problem. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's, I think that's kind of important. It's a, it's a diversion, yeah. but I, I hope it helps people to understand. Well, it does because yeah. people want to know, how did you go from creator of it to, of, of the, of the technology to getting the vaccine to then saying, hold on, this is not the technology we should be using here. I mean, I think and, it really shows yeah, the- Yeah, and it, it, the, key, the key, there was a number of pivot points, mm -hmm. um, like uh, Jill's book being censored by Amazon in March of 2020. Um, right. That's right. one example that I talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. um, it grows. Yeah. On this course of speaking out was- this long phone call I had with a Canadian physician who was administering vaccine and shared with me what was going on in Canada um, about their Canadian version of the CDC basically denying and deleting any of the adverse event records that he was submitting oh my back then. This is a long time ago. Um, and uh, also coercing and enticing children with things like ice cream cones back then oh, to yeah. take the jab. Yeah, okay? yeah. And as I listened to him, he, we, he went on telling me these stories until midnight on Saturday. And, and I, you know, completed the call uh, and, and said, I, he really wanted me to help intervene with their regulatory affairs people, their equivalent of the FDA. And I said, yeah. I'm, I'm US-based. I don't know them. I don't have the contacts. I don't know the rules in Canada, only the United States and India to some extent, um, and EU, but not Canada. And I can't help you. And I'm so sorry. Um, and then I woke up in the morning. Jill and I are both well-trained in bioethics. And I had the brainstorm and we started talking about it, that I could write an essay in trial site news about the bioethics of what was going on. And that was, I think, the first uh, real clear statement 
that what was being done was wrong. It was ethically wrong. Okay. And uh, that that is kind of what set me on this uh, dissenter whistleblower path. Um, it, so that's that's the fork in the road. And right were there. you were you looking at this? Was this after your second dose, or like when you when you had the reactions? I'd have to go back and look at the timing. Um, yeah. I think that this was before the second dose. Okay. But what okay. I love is Dr. Malone. You knew so much more than so many of us, and yet you trusted. The right. people that you thought were there to safeguard all of us as Americans. And I think that's an important part of your story. You knew more than, I think so many times people don't know what to believe because they don't have self-confidence. You know, right. they don't have the confidence to trust their own intuition or what they're noticing, but you knew way more. And yet you did trust as we all, you know, mm -hmm. at some yeah. point you do realize you can't, but that's an important part of your story. You weren't trying to be a whistleblower. You weren't trying to not go with the flow. You only stopped when you saw the clear evidence that something was very wrong and you had the courage to speak out about it. And then what happened next, they're canceling your wife's book on Amazon. They, you see that they're pushing against you in some nefarious way for simply sharing observation and, and evidence. So what, and you've been through it and people can read about that in your book, but what did that then, that had to have opened your eyes to more than just the pandemic. Well, it did. And <laughs> I had worked with the press for decades, usually on background, but occasionally I would come out and love my, and, and I was one of the main sources um, early on in the death of Jesse Gelsinger uh, from UPenn, um, from Jim Wilson overdosing him in a clinical trial with an adenovirus vector. Okay. Oh. So this was a pediatric uh, genetic disease case that basically got killed because some very egotistical scientists went off the reservation. They went off protocol mm -hmm. and they, they were frustrated because they kept dosing up and up and up and it still wasn't having an effect. And so they went over the protocol and they triggered what's called diffuse intravascular coagulation and it killed the young man, unfortunately. Oh. And I knew all about this. The press, like in this case, was very confused about what was going on. And there was all kinds of propaganda being pushed out by UPenn, um, just like there has been mm. in this in this case from Paul Offit is a notable example. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, um, I spoke out because my mentor, my bioethics mentor, who was also Jill's PhD mentor, um, told me that I had a moral obligation to do so. Okay. So well, I've been through this before, uh, yeah. and I knew that I could survive it, but I would take a hit. Mm. And so in some ways, this didn't surprise me, but I, I just did this essay yesterday about mm -hmm. uh, the title was Shedding Innocence. Yep. Um, uh, even, even all that I knew, for instance, I thought I knew all about Tony Fauci, and then Bobby Kennedy asked me to help edit his book before it got published. And I went through that twice. And frankly, I was depressed for weeks afterwards yeah. Um, yeah. with what I had learned. Right. Um, I thought I had understood what went on, but this whole thing, uh, I in the essay, I, I quote uh, from Shrek, uh, remember, ogres are like onions. Um, <laughs> they have layers. In yes. innocence, innocence is like, an onion too. Mm. Um, 
And this whole journey has been peeling layers and layers and layers off. And as I say in the essay, now we have to confront in our in our naivete yeah. the reality coming from the Twitter files yes. that we've had our government um, conspiring broadly across the government, colluding with tech yeah. to circumvent the First Amendment, to circumvent the Constitution, to bypass the Constitution. That's profound. These are people that took sworn oaths of office to defend yes. and protect, and they are actively working to uh, circumvent uh, the key clause, the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution. And uh, that's, you know, once you see that, um, you can never go back. Mm -mm. You know, you can't unsee that. Exactly. No, you can't. And then you can't not talk about it. You can't right. not share because you want everybody to know the truth. <laughs> that's right. And, and what I've been saying is, um, what is the remedy? When you find that there's been this broad-based collusion um, in, in internal conspiracy within the government uh, to employ weapons-grade propaganda against all of us and censorship and all these things that completely distort fundamental aspects of the Constitution, um, what's the remedy when it's such so broadly based? Because the only remedy I think that exists in the Constitution is impeachment and there's no way impeachment is going to happen so it's it's like there's no there's no justice there's no relief yes and right. dr malone that i want to ask you about that a lot of our writers wrote in and uh, we let them know we we're going to be talking with you today i'm sorry a lot of our listeners and they wanted to many of the questions were around this do you think there will be justice for what has happened and i'm sorry to say i'm Justice is a very difficult thing. People talk about Nuremberg too, mm -hmm. and um, they do things like post memes of nooses uh, and guillotines and such like. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's uh, maybe it it scratches your itch in the moment and makes you feel good, but it's absolutely not helpful, and it's not moving the ball down the field. Um. When Tony Fauci was uh, held to account under sworn testimony by the attorney generals, um, over 160 times he pleaded uh, a memory failure. 160. 160. Yeah. And we did speak with a um, with an attorney, I think it was a human rights attorney who told us Better that was great advice from his from his attorneys to plead, I don't recall. That was the, yeah. he could skirt through the entire thing by saying he did not recall, and that's what he did. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the the uh, Bill Clinton defense. Yeah. Um, it's the Hillary Clinton defense. It's become the norm in D.C. When and this is why Ron Johnson. We we had a a Twitter um, a Spaces uh, right after Twitter Spaces kind of got flipped on. Um, with Ron Johnson and many others, but particularly Ron. And um, as you know, he's been a warrior in this. Yeah. It's the reason he re ran for re-election. Yes. Mm -hmm. And fortunately Thank got God. in, but unfortunately the Senate didn't flip, so he can't subpoena anybody. And it was somewhat, more than somewhat depressing. 
he he basically said that he doesn't think that we're going to be able to hold these people accountable um, mm. because of this the structure of DC. And he said that they all know that they're at risk, that they've done wrong. And so they've done all kinds of things to hide it. And now, well, I, don't you yeah. also think, Dr. Malone, being that you've had experience in DC, don't you think they also somehow believe they are going to get away with it? Because it seems to me. Obviously they do. That they know. And that's why Fauci will still show his mugshot on television and, and give his opinion. He's not a cardiologist. He's not. The I, I don't know this for a fact. Yeah. Um, but I speculate that Tony Fauci must be deeply embedded in the intelligence community, or he wouldn't. He wouldn't have the job that he used to have, um, and because he, he wasn't he just head of he wasn't just head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. He was in charge of the entire biodefense slash bioweapons program um, across both NIH and uh, Department of Defense. And so he had amassed that power. That's why he got his big bonus was when he took over the program oversight for DOD. Yes. Um, I, I, uh, the, the intelligence community is, is wrapped around this from soup to nuts. Yeah. And, uh, they, they don't play nice. They're trained liars. They, I know this because I've worked with them. Um, I used to have a business partner who's retired CIA. He mm. told me about their training, how they get trained. By the way, they go to Baltimore as part of their graduate exercises, and they have to um, pretend to be somebody else uh, and get around town. So just good to know. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's, that's, you know, these people are trained liars. It's what they do. And you have to approach them as, as you would in your life, you know that they're, whether it's a little child who's an adept liar or, or an adult uh, or an ex-boyfriend or whatever, um, you know, the wise person learns to how to deal with liars and you have to kind of triangulate truth with them. Sometimes you have to trap them and uh, you have to listen to what they're saying and what they're not saying to, to figure out what's real. Mm -hmm. But Tony, Tony absolutely is an adroit liar and he has been his whole career. Oh yeah. Um, and the rules that apply to me and to the rest of us that do clinical research um, and regulatory affairs have never applied to Tony. Mm -mm. No. Uh, and so that's just the way things are. Yeah. The, well, the, okay. I okay. want to say though, I have been approached by a very senior person in the government and I'm not, I, for obvious reasons, I can't talk about this more, um, who has deep intelligence that goes far beyond what we are thinking is the most outrageous conspiracies. Um, uh, I have yet to have the meeting with this person of undisclosed gender, uh, but um, from what is being told to me, this person has the goods has the receipts, has been in the position to know what's mm -hmm. been going on. And uh, if what is being asserted to me is true, um, all of our minds are about to get blown wide open by the depth of the conspiracy that's gone on here. Well, wow. And, and when we all that out. Yeah. Can you let us know when to pop our popcorn? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are here for it. We're here Stay for tuned. it. I know. <laughs> 
Well, Dr. Malone, okay, so, so far we have been able to determine the difference. And I love that you took the time to help people understand in layman's terms, the difference in the vaccine, a vaccine and the mRNA technology and kind of the history behind that. And then also the evolution of someone who has been involved from creation to regulatory agency um, involvement. And then you kind of waking up, we all call it waking up, right? When you woke up yep. to what all has transpired. And I think that that's our goal and our mission as a podcast is to encourage people to think, to give them evidence to look at and to think for themselves. Because like Amen. you, we love the first amendment and we think yeah. it should continue. But I want to, again, encourage people to go read your book. It's an easy read as smart as he is. Uh, and, and your wife joked clearly is too. It is an easy read. And it's, yeah. When I tell you it's chock full of these stories and details that will blow your mind of how we've gotten here. And I know when I was in high school, I read two books that it impacted my life, 1984. And I remember thinking, how could that ever happen in my America? Yeah. How could that ever happen? The other one was JFK. Uh -huh. um, my senior, my senior teacher loved Mr. Start of it, made me read JFK. And that's when I thought to myself, oh, our government would lie to us. Now, it doesn't mean that that book was all correct in its um, hypotheses, but- And yet, and yet we have this recent disclosure from Tucker. That's it. And yeah. we have the unwillingness through multiple presidents to follow a congressional law that they disclose the Marshall Commission documents. Yeah. Um, and it means that Mr. Trump knew. Yep. Oh, yeah. um, Mr. Yeah. Bush, both Bushes knew. They knew. Um, uh, directors of CIA that are now employed by CNN and MSNBC knew. Mm. Um, we are surrounded. The the it's as if the floor has dropped out from under us. Mm -hmm. We're we without even knowing we've been surrounded by trained liars that are aware of this profound truth. And suddenly we find ourselves in a world in which um, everything that we thought we knew about yeah. the United States and the yeah. United States government becomes uh, uh, questionable. We have to we have to reassess everything that we thought that we knew. It's it's mm -hmm. a bizarre world to live in. It's it's like something out of a dystopian science fiction novel. Yes. Yeah. It is. Well, so my question is, you know, pretty much every guest we have on, we always ask them their opinion or advice on how do we move forward? How does the average American, the people listening to our podcast, you know, when, when we hear that we're entrenched, you know, and all these people surrounding us with all this intelligence and it's like, you know, we've said it before, it's like David versus Goliath. We feel like we're up against this Goliath. How can we what do we do change? now? What do how, we, how do we, we make the forward? change? Right. How can we as individuals and the little people, um, <laughs> change the trajectory of, you know, what's been happening and what's going to happen. So I have, the book has some, um, the last third of the book is kind of designed to address that. Mm -hmm. um, and it, the book is built around a medical metaphor of a physician or a nurse encountering a patient where the first third is the history and physical. The middle third is the diagnosis of what has happened to us. And the last third is the treatment plan. So the last third of the book has a bunch of practical things down to the level of grow a garden, you know, victory garden, Right. Yes. Um, homeschool your kids. Mm -hmm. That's my uh, letter to a coerced mother in the, in the last chapter. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of those are kind of big picture, longer term things. Uh, And lately I've been getting the same question again and again, what can people do now? And what I encounter is that a lot of people, uh, when they go through this waking up process, um, they can end up getting really discouraged, uh, almost, you know, despondent. What can we do? This is so big. These forces that have been planning this for decades are so powerful. They own all of the world. Right. Um, what can we do as, as just average people? What can we do to protect our children in, right. in our future? It's the kids that like really yeah. help make you me. Need, you need both. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm old enough that I'm a little bit older than you. Uh, so I, um, you know, for me, I don't have that many more years, but, uh, my children, my grandchildren, uh, like with all of us, I think that are not psychopaths. Um, they're the ones that matter. Uh, but can I ask, so you the, I have a, I have a practical thing, okay. um, in response to this, uh, hopeless, helpless, which often leads to depression feeling that people get. We have been subjected to military grade propaganda, which you can, you can find um, the training manuals, the guidance, the academic logic behind that summarized as fifth generation warfare. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a Michael Flynn book just out there's another great Kindle book on fifth gen warfare. I've put out some essays. There are other information on the on the web. This has nothing to do with cell towers. Five uh, GW is is fifth generation warfare, not five uh, G. Uh, um, uh, read it. Learn about it. You can see that it's been deployed on us. Once you understand what it is, okay. This is what's been done to us is military grade propaganda has been deployed by governments against their populace Mm. in order to get us to buy into the things that they wanted us to do. Mm -hmm. And they're continuing to do that. Now, here's the good thing. In 5G warfare, um, it is is, uh, designed, it's a whole way of approaching information in 5g warfare the battlefield is not for territory it's for your mind yeah that's Um, right and uh all of us that interact here on podcasts on social media etc we already understand a lot of 5g warfare because it's kind of built around that world so we understand these words like influencers and bots and trolls and and all of this stuff that we deal with on a daily basis that is being weaponized against us. These are 5G warfare tools that are that are weapons, okay? We, we deal with weaponized information all the time, and we've been doing it since we were, you know, young adults. Yeah. And uh, so you, everybody understands a lot of this stuff. There's a different language, mm-hmm. and there's some subtleties to this. But if you if you understand it, and you understand what they've done to us, you can then take that and turn it back against them so that we all become empowered. We all become warriors. This is one of my key messages, even to the vaccine damaged, mm-hmm. is 
you are not a vaccine damaged person. Okay. You are who you are. You don't have to be a victim. You don't have to assume the role of a victim. You can become a warrior. Okay. And, and the way you can do that is by understanding what they've done to us and then turning it back on them. One of the most powerful tools, of course, the podcast is just destroying corporate media. Yeah. Joe Rogan, they acknowledge is their biggest threat yep. okay? mm-hmm. and all that he represents. Okay. Um, but you, every one of us can be empowered. But what I plea is that as you become and start acting more like a warrior, an information warrior, and use humor. Humor is a really powerful 5G tool. Great. Um, <laughs> JP Sears, exactly. But um, uh, try hard to be kind and to not make the the ethical mistakes that our opponents do, where where they're um, uh, demeaning and uh, gaslighting and attacking others. Uh, you know, stay focused on the facts. And just to wrap up a little bit, um, we recently had this young gentleman that had an unfortunate heart attack on the football field. Mm -hmm. And then we had one of our fellow podcasters, Diamond, pass away. And in both cases, people want to weaponize that and they want to make it into a us against them fight about vax or unvax or whatever. And Let's all do our best not to play that game that corporate media plays. Let's stay rational, mature, adults, fact-based, calm. Um, don't resort to violence or violent words. Um, we, we, we can't win over the persuadable middle if we're always bashing them with sticks. Yeah. We have to have an open heart and approach them as, as the as I'm going to say the word, they are victims. They, they have, here's, here's a way to think about this world. We have all been subjected to a massive globally coordinated propaganda campaign, fifth generation warfare information campaign, the likes of which the world has never seen before. That is honest Mm -hmm. to God truth. Well-documented. Okay. And some of us, for some reason, often because we have community like the three of you formed community mm-hmm. have been able to not be consumed by this, but many people are, this is, this is technology designed to get straight into their heads. Yes. And mm-hmm. many people have not been able to resist it. Right. Should we hate them? No, no. we should forgive them. Yes. Uh, Cause there's no way that we can ever help them to get out from under the hypnosis that they're suffering from. If we, if we come at them with hate and anger, we have to come at them with love and an open heart and patience. We're trying to deprogram people that have basically been in a cult and that's hard to do. It takes time and patience. So that's my plea. And, and it's, it's designed, you know, let's all see if we could heal. Yes. Um, and well, not allow them to divide us. Over? So we've all been there. Remembering that we've all been there. At some point in our lives, we were all those people. We were all those people who were asleep at the wheel mm-hmm. or programmed in a certain way. Maybe not to the extent of 
during the, the pandemic programming, but this has been going on, like you said, for such a long time. And we didn't start waking up right. until just a couple of years ago. And, and you've got to remember that fear paralyzes people, right. you know, just like when you talk about mass formation psychosis. So a lot of people that when you're in, when you're fear-based, you're, you have actions because you're scared. And yeah. so we have, that's where it's easier to kind of come at a place of empathy and understanding and trying to say, okay, I know that's where you are, but let's try to take the emotions out and look at the facts. And that's what we've tried to do with this podcast as much as possible, even though we get emotional, we get emotional. sometimes um, and very passionate about different things. Um, it's just... It, you know, we're going to bring information that people aren't seeing. And so it does hopefully make them stop and just think yeah. and maybe say, okay, wait a minute, maybe I'm looking at this all wrong, you know? So that's yeah. right. So good on you. Um, <laughs> and, and thanks for, for your courage in leadership, uh, in, in willingness to invest time to do this. Well, this, this is how, this is how we win is in a decentralized way where we're all leaders. There is no one leader. There are right. people yeah. that are trying to advocate that this physician or that person is the leader. Yes. And and I just completely reject that. That is, ab the thing about that is that is 20th century thinking, okay? <laughs> we're in the 21st century now um, of a decentralized information battle space in which we are all soldiers and we're all leaders, over. That's right. Well, and we, we can't thank you enough too, but you wrote about it in your sub stack. You know, the truth is like a lion, you know, you yes. let it loose, right? You, you let it loose and you don't have to defend it. You let it loose and it will defend itself. We're, we're watching that happen and it has required great patience. And I'm so thankful you mentioned that. Do not lose heart. Do not yes. lose heart that, that there are more and more eyes are being opened daily. And it's probably not because we've hit them over the head with it, it's because they've been allowed to draw their own conclusions and they've just decided to open their eyes and pay attention. I think right. really when you just decide to say, hmm, wonder if I'm wrong, which by the way, we ask ourselves all the time. Hmm. That's how I've gotten to it here is that yeah, I like, thought, what if wrong. I'm wrong? I was like, there's no way. <laughs> yeah. like, well, I, I think that's an, that's an important part of the, the answer to the question I think you just gave us. What do we do now? Constantly question. Constantly yes. question and seek think, the answer. You said it right at the beginning. Think for yourself. Think for yourself. Just yep. think for yourself and not just blindly blindly trust because as Dr. Malone outlines in his book and, and Bobby Kennedy does it in his, you know, lies my government told me is about the revelations of the lies we've been told and how we've been programmed to believe and respond. And the way we win is exactly what you said, Dr. Malone. We got to love each other. We got to forgive each other and work towards unity. And unity doesn't mean that we hide our truths or we 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 try to pretend that none of this is happening. No, it's that we say it and we say it in love and we allow people to reach their own conclusions in their time too. And if we just don't lose heart, we just can't grow weary in the well-doing. We've got to just keep sharing what we know and but thank you for being a part of our community before you even knew it, because you were giving us things to go read. You were giving us, you, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Corey, like so many you of no you. no idea how much you have guided us in all of this, even yeah. though this we, is the first time we're actually talking. Yeah. <laughs> but you blazed a trail we followed and we didn't follow you for you. We followed you for evidence. And I think that was the difference. You mm -hmm. know, we followed you for the evidence. And 
Thank you for giving it to us. We're going to continue following you. We hope this is one of many conversations. Like I said, I could drive to Virginia right now, sit with you and your wife in your kitchen and like learn. And, and we probably will. <laughs> so, well, uh, y'all are welcome. We'll leave the porch light on. Uh, we, have a, we have a guest house and Perfect. I'm here. I'm here in a pig barn that was built in 1945. That's now a studio uh, with, with high-end cameras. So we could do a whole thing if you wanted to. Oh we're my gosh. We're, we're coming to Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> but just on behalf of our audience, on behalf of a lot of grateful Americans and people, our audience spans the globe. So our grateful Australians and, and our English friends, all of us are saying thank you for being willing to share your voice, even in midst of the opposition. And, um, you know, there are way more of us than we know. Don't ever feel alone. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't know anyone else is thinking like you, you aren't alone. Keep nah. thinking, keep talking, keep sharing, keep asking people questions and making them just think. You yes. never know. You never know what's going to happen. Go. Dr. Malone, thank you. You're amazing. Thank we you appreciate you. <laughs> thank we you. really appreciate it. Thank Be you. Good. <laughs>